Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In August of 2019, Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times and a group of black journalists, historians, and scholars produced an entire issue of the paper's Sunday magazine. It commemorated the 400th anniversary of the arrival on the shores of Virginia of the first enslaved people from Africa. It was her conception, the 1619 Project, and it took a clear-eyed, unflinching look at the long, painful, and profound impact of slavery and white supremacy on the lives of African Americans in our country to this day. I sat down with Hannah Jones this week to talk about her own journey, her project, and our country's unfinished business. Here's that conversation. Nicole Hannah-Jones, it's it's so good to see you. And I wanted to start by talking about your story as part of the larger American story that you, you are charting uh, with the 1619 Project. But talk to me about your own family and its history, which you wrote about a little in the preamble to the 1619 Project piece. Yeah, so uh, thank you for having me on the podcast, and I'm excited for the conversation. Um, I start the six, my essay, uh, which is about democracy, with the story of my father. Uh, so I am um, biracial. My mother is white from Iowa. My father is black from Mississippi, and um, I'm the product of the Great Migration. So my grandmother brought my father and two of his young siblings up from Mississippi on the uh, Illinois Central Line when my dad was about three years old. Um, he was born on a cotton plantation in Greenwood, Mississippi. Um, for those who know civil rights history, uh, Greenwood was the seat of Freedom Summer, who was considered one of the most violent places to be Black in America. Uh, it was a very hard place. And uh, at about the age three or four is when they start putting um, the kids in the field to start bringing water out to the workers who were picking cotton. And that's when my grandmother decided that her kids were not going to have a life uh, working in the fields. And she uh, loaded them up on the train and moved to Iowa. So I kind of opened the piece with um, my dad joined the military and served in the army. And then he flew this colossally big, <laughs> at least in my mind at the time, uh, flag in our front yard. And as a high school student, um, who was, you know, starting to become really deeply aware of society's inequities and uh, my dad's position in this country, I was deeply embarrassed uh, by this kind of outward uh, exhibit of um, patriotism. It, it seemed to me that he was degrading himself by flying this flag in the yard. And so the project 
begins with that and how I came to understand that my dad was making a claim uh, on a long legacy of Black people who felt that no one had the right to tell them that this was not their country. Did you have that conversation with him? Did you ask him why he flew the flag? I didn't. You know, I I never did. Um, I understood that to have that conversation would have felt very disrespectful to my dad. So while I had those feelings, they weren't feelings that I expressed to him. My dad was um, extremely proud of his service. Uh, Like many black men, um, he saw the army not just as a way out of poverty, but as a way to prove um, his citizenship. And so he was uh, very patriotic. And I didn't ever have that conversation. And in fact, people often ask me, well, when did you come to understand your dad's patriotism? And I said it was while I was reporting and reading um, research material for my essay. So it was last year. I I truly never understood it um, until I started working on the piece on democracy. Yeah, you said he he served to sort of certify his patriotism, his but but the promise of of a brighter future didn't pay off as much for him and for other black uh, service men and women, but mostly men back then. And that's part of what you chart here, that these compacts were really, there was no sign hanging on them saying for whites only. But in many ways, that's the way it worked out because of the discriminatory way in which programs like the GI Bill and and housing programs that flowed from the GI Bill and other legislation, they just weren't administered on the square. Absolutely. I mean, there's a very long history of this. Uh, uh, if you look, Black Americans have fought in every war, uh, including the war that made us America, um, and have joined the military at the highest rates of all racial groups. And that has come out of a deep sense that uh, in a country that has not treated you as citizens, the way that you can prove your citizenship is to be willing to die for your country. Uh, But unfortunately, Black Americans, um, for most of the history of this country, served in segregated military. Um, They often had to fight just for the right to fight. Um, At least, you know, um, up until the Civil War, Uh, They were not allowed to fight initially, and only when the army was or the military was losing were black people allowed into the military. (laughs) Um, And so we have this long history of being willing to fight for our country, but then not being beneficiaries. We know that the Civil War pensions were administered in a racially discriminatory way. We know that the GI Bill was administered in a racially discriminatory way. And so, no, again and again, even though black people have been disproportionately willing to fight for this country, they've been left out of many of the promises uh, that that fight was to bring. So returning to your your family, you mentioned that you're biracial. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how did your parents uh, meet and, and when did they marry? Yeah, so I, um, to be clear, I'm biracial, but I, I definitely consider myself No, black. I will get to yeah. that. No, I understand <laughs> that. And you know, I want, well, as long as we're there, let me ask you this. Yeah. You don't actually get to make that choice, do you? In America, uh, no, I, I think you you can try to make that choice, but no, my my father. Um, well, I, okay, so I, I'll ask, I'll answer how we met and then tell you uh, the yeah. conversation that my father had when, when we were young. So, um, my father met my mom. My mother came to my hometown to go to college. Waterloo, Iowa. Yeah. So uh, in the neighboring town in the metro area is the University of Northern Iowa. This is my mom's first time away from rural Iowa. She grew up in a very, very small town with no black people in it uh, called Swisher, Iowa. 
uh, and she came to go to school. And my dad actually, uh, as he would say, would go up to the university to chase women. So uh, he did not attend the university, but he would go up there to meet women. Uh, I guess he liked uh, college educated women. And he met my mom one day, uh, actually on the way to another date. Um, and I guess they hit it off and, and the rest was history. Uh, but my mother's uh, parents disowned my mom when they found out that she was uh, dating and living with this black man. Um, and my parents eventually, um, they had my older sister and that's when my grandparents started speaking to my mom again because this was their first grandchild. My parents were married in 1976. Uh, I was actually in my mom's stomach during the wedding. She was um, about five months pregnant, uh, four months pregnant with me when they got married. And of course, this is just less than a decade yeah. after the Supreme Court ruled in loving that um, it was unconstitutional to deny uh, black and white people the right to marry, which is shows us how recent this history that we like to think is um, very far past is. Um, so as let, a kid, let, let, let me just stop ahead. you right there for a second, because <laughs> I, that is such a stunning thing to think about. Yes. Because we understand that the reason that there were these laws was that white governors uh, uh, and and people in, in, in control did not want, they, they felt that it would, it would pollute the white race. It w- it, it's just one of so many uh, different ways in which black people in this country were treated as less than. And just so incredibly you know, we, we didn't have laws saying you couldn't marry, a you know, a Catholic or you couldn't marry a Italian or you couldn't, marry, you know, that this is it's just a stunning part of our history that needs to be remembered because of what it meant. But uh, I, I interrupted you. You were. No, that's OK. I mean, it, it is important to pause on those moments because we kind of just take it for granted that oh, this is what happened. But it's good to stop and think about what that actually means. And again, how recent this was. Um, a decade before I was born, my parents' marriage would have been illegal in the state of my dad's birth. Um, their entire relationship would have been illegal in the state of my dad's birth. And that's why when you say, you know, when I this, you know, identify as black, that there was not really a choice. I mean, in this country, we have long had the one drop rule, which was as the anti-miscegenation laws intended to keep the white race pure. Uh, So any person who had any uh, known quantity of black blood was considered black. And my dad certainly, I remember very vividly when we were young, had a conversation with my sisters and I and said, your mother may be white, but you are black. You are going to be treated as black. And, and that is who you are. Um, and I think he was trying to um, make very clear to us that you were not going to be the beneficiaries of your mom's whiteness uh, and don't go through the world thinking that that's who you are, because that's not how the world was going to treat you. Yeah, and I'm that, grateful for that. That point that you are not going to be treated that way is 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 the what I was getting at this, you know, beyond all the laws, the fact is um, you walking down a street uh, would be treated differently. You applying for uh, a loan, you uh, all of that um, is it was the reality and and remains the reality in in, in many ways. So tell me, uh, you've talked about uh, the um, your relationship with your folks, uh, which each had difficulties, it felt like. Uh, but um, I, I, 
it's interesting to me to think of how do you, your, your mom was the beneficiary of uh, the privilege that goes along with being white in a country where, uh, uh, you know, that was the norm. Uh, it, what, what conversations have you had with her about that? About the fact that you would be treated different. You talk about the conversation with your dad. What about with your right. mom? Yeah, so um, we were always, I, I guess, necessarily a house that talked about race. I mean, there really wasn't uh, a way to get around it. Because um, even though you know, my mom's grand, my mom's parents, they were great grandparents to us. Uh, they, we spent a lot of time with them. We went on family trips together. Um, they lived an hour away. We spent summers at their house. We were very close to them. But they also uh, were racist in many ways, um, not to us, um, but it really showed the way that you can have intimate relationships with black people and see those black people as exceptional and still make all of these racist assumptions about uh, black people writ large. So how, we had, how, Nicole, how did that manifest itself? I mean, conversations, um, conversations at the table about how other, you know, we'd be having dinner at their house or something and they talk about something that black people did or how other black people were. Uh, I remember one time uh, we were watching, um, it must've been during the, uh, when Jesse Jackson was running for the presidency uh, back in the eighties and, and my grandmother coming in and um, seeing that the speaker was Jesse Jackson's son uh, was speaking and says, um, wow, he's really articulate for a black man. I was, I'm surprised that he's a black man. Um, so things like that, um, being, you know, not being comfortable going into black parts of town, that sort of thing. So it was, it was always kind of there, um, even as they were amazingly loving and kind and generous with us. Mm. Uh, so there was always this. And so my mom and I, we would have conversations about it. Uh, sometimes I, I would clearly be bothered by it. Uh, I think she was a little stuck because these were her parents um, and I was her daughter. And this was a choice that, that she had made to get in this relationship and, and have children with this man. So um, I'm very close to my mom and she's probably, you know, she's about as left as you can get on, on every issue because while she is white, at that time, choosing to be with a black man meant when she was anywhere with her kids or her family, she also faced a lot of judgment. She also was treated as an outsider. This was a choice. It wasn't something she was born into, but she certainly had that experience of, of how you can be ostracized because of either your race or the relationship that you choose to be in. As a kid, you were bused to school. Uh, it was a voluntary busing uh, program in, in Waterloo. Um, but you talked about the your, you, you share your observation. You've shared your observations about that experience, uh, about uh, feeling a little bit like an outsider mm -hmm. and about the trip through town from the black section of town through the white section of town. Talk a little about that. You know, I've spent so much of my career writing about schools, segregation, yes. and integration, but I didn't realize at the time that I was part of an integration program. I mean, when you're in second grade and your parents tell you you're going to a different school, you, you just get on the bus and, and go wherever you're headed. Um, I certainly noticed that my bus ride got a lot longer uh, and the people in my school looked a lot different than the kids I had gone to class with, but I never had a conversation about why that was. Um, I later found out 
that it was a voluntary program only in, and, and you will know this, that at that time, um, the Department of, of Health and Education was threatening school districts to either voluntarily integrate or the Justice Department was going to sue. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were, my hometown was facing a lawsuit from the NAACP, and that's what brought about this program. Um, so the, the program got me into the wealthiest and also the whitest public schools in my hometown, uh, got me access to the best public education that my hometown had to offer. But it was extremely isolating. Um, it is hard to to state what it feels like to be the only kids. All the they the bus would literally uh, go and pick up all the black kids on my side of town, which is why my bus ride was so long, and then drop us off to various white schools on the other side of town. And at the end of the day, we all had to get on that bus and go home. And all the other kids were walking home. This was their neighborhood and their school, and it was always very clear to us that this was not our community. This was not our school. Uh, we were being allowed to come there um, to get something, and then you know to go back home. Uh, so my school friends and my home, you know, my neighborhood friends were completely different. Uh, they never mixed. My uh, White school friends could never come to my house. They could never come to anything on our side of the town. I could only ever uh, go to their houses or the parks on their side of the town. Uh, so even at a really young age, I would say by fifth grade, definitely by sixth grade, I saw how clearly both the racial and class lines were drawn. Uh, and I imagine that not just academically did that experience allow me to get where I am, but it also was definitely uh, shaping my thinking and my understanding of the world. Were you treated differently by your friends in the neighborhood? Because you... I never, yeah, I never experienced, I never experienced that. I know um, a lot of Black people say it was kind of hard to straddle those two worlds. Um, I, I don't, I, I've never mm -hmm. experienced that. It was never a problem for me. You know, you became a really celebrated as a journalist for the work you did at ProPublica uh, on education. Mm -hmm. And you, you have been, you've talked a lot about your continued belief in desegregation. Um, you know, we, and, and you, we, you've charted, you charted in, in some of your writing families of generations of families, families that went to segregated schools, families because of Brown versus Board of Education went to integrated schools. And now the resegregation, uh, of schools, um, talk about the, the importance to you of of desegregation and whether there it is whether the idea of separate but equal, which Brown versus Education was to eradicate, is is even possible. The notion that you can be separate but equal, definitely. Well, first, let me say uh, just in terms of terms. I don't believe in desegregation. I believe in integration. And I mm -hmm. don't think that those are the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, when I was one of five black kids in my all white elementary school, that was not integration. That was allowing a handful of us in to someone else's school where we did not share in that school, in, in the culture. Um, and and it, it never was our school. I, I believe in integration, which is uh, about um, not tokenism. It's not just about, it's not just one way. It includes the educators and where we're actually building schools that are serving multiple populations. That I do believe in. I don't think that anything about the way that we understand 
racial hierarchy in this country and uh, the study of history or even the present uh, would lead us to believe that separate can be equal in this country. Can separate be equal? Of course, right? There's nothing um, about white kids that makes black kids smarter or makes black kids want to learn. Uh, it is certainly possible to have all black schools that are excellent. Um, that is possible. The problem is uh, we have never, uh, for a single day in this country, provided the same resources to black schools as we mm -hmm. have to white schools. Uh, right now, a majority black and Latino schools nationwide get about $28 billion less in funding every year um, than majority white schools. And on top of that, black schools now are also facing a double segregation. They also are, are um, often of concentrated poverty, which we know is just not good for the learning environment. So we have uh, kids that are the most disadvantaged uh, societally being placed in schools with the fewest resources. So um, I would like, you know, I, I didn't put my daughter in, I put my daughter in a segregated school on purpose. And I think that uh, black people should certainly have a choice if they want to put their kid in a school that uh, where the kids look like them. You know, it, it's, it's not fun to spend your whole life as one of a tiny minority in every mm -hmm. environment that mm -hmm. you've ever been in. But we have just never treated black kids the same when they are separated. We see that in every school district in the country where there are significant numbers of black kids. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. One thing that interested me is that you were exposed in your high school to a book be called Before mm -hmm. the Mayflower, and that really planted a seed for you about the history that you're now so closely associated with telling. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing what uh, high school, the, the path that high school can actually lead you on. It was uh, my high school which was, uh, I was bused into that high school, it was about 20% black, and we, uh, it offered a one semester black studies elective. And in that one semester, uh, I learned more about the history of black people than I had learned in my entire education to that point. And I kind of became obsessed with learning the history. So when uh, that class ended, I asked that teacher, who was the only black male teacher I ever had, Mr. Ray Dial, um, to keep giving me more books. I, I started uh, uh, self-study. And one of the books he put in my hand was Before the Mayflower. And so it was, it was uh, I believe, as a junior in high school that I came across the date 1619. Um, and I remember how powerful that date was to me because I was just absolutely shocked that Black people had been here that long and that slavery uh, started that long ago. Uh, and I understood that there was a reason no one told us that date, that that date held a power and that erasure held a power. It was also in that same class that I uh, joined my high school newspaper because the same teacher, I went to him and I, and I complained about how our high school paper didn't write about the black kids at our school and the, the challenges that we faced. And he said, well, either join the paper and write those stories yourself or shut up and don't come in here and complain anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I did. So it, it's, it's just so, you know, you, you couldn't have predicted this, but it was that same teacher, that same class that brought together these two areas of my life, uh, journalism 
and uh, understanding of 1619 and the power of that history to create the project that people now know me for. You, you, do, is that teacher still living? Do you keep in touch he with is. him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, we were actually just texting the other day. I tell him, you know, I say, I say his name all the time. And yep, he, he is, and he's still in Iowa, and he's now a preacher. Ah. <laughs> well, he must, be, he must be proud of what he, uh, what he launched in you. Yes, for sure. The, um, you went to Notre Dame. Why did you choose to go to Notre Dame? <laughs> it's kind of an God, inter- interesting yeah. choice. So I was, um, you know, I had a lot of colleges recruiting me in high school. I, I had good grades. I tested very well. Uh, I took, you know, uh, the hardest classes that my high school offered. And, and I was totally overwhelmed by the choices, uh, having never been away from home. Uh, but I knew uh, I had to go to a school that was within driving distance because my parents Uh, could not afford to fly me home if I wanted to come home for holidays. Uh, I wanted to be somewhere that was close to a city with black people in it. Um, And I wanted a school that had a prestigious name because I believed that um, if I could attach myself to a prestigious school, I wouldn't have to spend my whole life proving to people that I was a smart black person. Um, So those were the three things. And I was working at the grocery store one day and this guy came in, his name was LaShane Sadler. He had a Notre Dame Letterman jacket on. And I was like, oh, I'd never heard of a black person who'd gone or met a black person who went to Notre Dame. And I asked him if he went there, he said yes. So I went home and I looked it up. Uh, There wasn't internet. Uh, at least I didn't have internet at that time. And I went home and looked it up in our world book encyclopedia set. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, I saw I that it those, was, yeah. yep, it was about six hour drive. Uh, I looked up the demographics and I decided to apply there. It was um, the only school that I applied to. But smart as you are, uh, you had a really hard time there when you first arrived. You, you almost flunked out of uh, of there, so it must have been a it must have been a, a, a rough initiation there. Um, yeah, tell, tell me about that. It was so Notre Dame was never uh, challenging for. Well, I won't say it wasn't challenging for me academically, but it, I never struggled there in terms of being able to do the work. But I certainly struggled culturally. Um, Notre Dame is a very elite place. Um, it is also very. Um, it's quite conservative uh, for mm-hmm. a college campus and uh, also very, very small black population. And I really struggled with the race and class dynamics there. Um, I, I was called, you know, a nigger for the first time at Notre Dame. Um, it was, it was really hard. Mm-hmm. And I think I went, um, I don't think I realized it at the time, but I certainly went into a depression my first year and I just stopped going to class. I just felt so uncomfortable there. Um, I earned my first F's in my life at Notre Dame, my very first report card. Uh, I tried to get the mail before my parents got it, but I, I didn't get there uh. quite fast enough. And I, I had a B, a C, and three F's on my report card. And second semester uh, was almost as bad. And I remember my parents talking to me and they're like, do you know what it's taken for us to you know, help you financially in a school like this, like you cannot fail. Um, and I got called in um, second semester. I got, I was on academic probation. I got called in to the uh, dean of freshman year. I'd never met this woman before in my life. The first time we ever met was uh, when she called me in to tell me that I should withdraw from Notre Dame because mm-hmm. I was going to be kicked out for um, 
uh, my academic performance and it would be much easier for me to get into another school if I withdrew as opposed to uh, got kicked out. And I, I remember leaving that meeting so angry that she never asked me once why I was struggling. Yeah. Um, she, she just, she knew I couldn't make it and I knew I could make it. I knew I wasn't going to class, but that the work wasn't hard. So I left that meeting actually determined to prove her wrong. And that's what I did. Um, there was a black Dean there who approved me to take a double load at summer school. Um, I took, I think six classes at summer school that summer I hmm. caught up and I graduated uh, on time. So, uh, yeah, I, I almost didn't make it, but uh, my whole life, I have always used people underestimating me as motivation uh, when I wasn't able to find motivation yeah. elsewhere. Probably not the best way to motivate someone, <laughs> but, but motivation nonetheless. You, uh, you create, uh, you know, when when the sixteen nineteen project uh, uh, surfaced, and it created such a stir last year when when you uh, released when the Times devoted a whole magazine uh, to it. Uh, which everyone should read, by the way, because it's just such a stunning uh, piece of work. Uh, the Federalist found uh, a letter yeah. that you had written when you were a student at, at Notre Dame, and you were responding to a piece called God Bless Columbus, and you had a line in there saying the white race is the biggest murderer, rapist, pillager, and thief of the modern world. That uh, was a line. Yes, and like in Columbus <laughs> to Hitler. Now, first of all, let me say... Um, I, I don't know anyone who necessarily wants to be held to every word that they wrote when they were 19, 19. years mm-hmm. old. Uh, but um, but that that was for you at Notre Dame to write that letter uh, was quite a statement. And I was wondering, did it, did it what kind of reaction did it elicit? Did it elicit when you when you published it? You know, I honestly don't remember. Um, I didn't even remember writing that letter. You know, I'm 44 years old now. That was so long ago. And when I saw the letter and I started reading it, I was like, I wrote this? Um, <laughs> so then I had to do some research and um, look up what it was that I was responding to. And then it all kind of came back to me. Um, so, so yes, I, I was 19. I was um, at a university where I felt extremely racially isolated. I was very angry, which is clear. Um, We had been uh, joining in protests. The Black Student Union had been joining in protests with uh, one of the Native American groups against these racist um, Christopher Columbus murals in the administration building. And um, this guy wrote this editorial where he basically justified genocide and said that, you know, Native people were rapists and cannibals and uh, Columbus did us all a favor. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I was so, um, so if you notice the Federalist, it does not uh, publish or point to the article that I was responding to. I was so hurt for my, my friends um, that they would have to read something like that. And, and, And the opening line of that, uh, letter I wrote is how dare the observer publish such a racist thing. And then I decided I was going to match tone for tone. Um, what I, I think it was a poor attempt at satire. <laughs> um, I was going to match tone for tone what he was saying about Native people, I was going to say about white people. And I ended by saying, how does it feel to have your entire race written about in that way? Uh, so uh-huh. I don't remember. 
I, I don't interesting. remember. I, you know, I just have the I just have that quote because that's the quote that was. Ah. But uh, I haven't yeah. seen the whole the whole letter. But that that's a that's kind of important context. It is important context. Now again, would I write that today? Of course not. Um, you know, you do a lot of shit when you're 19 that you wouldn't do now. But I I certainly um, I didn't think it was presented fairly, and it wasn't presented in the context. And I don't remember the response on campus. I'm sure it was hot. That was a, a heated time. There were heated yeah. debates happening. Um, but in some ways, you know, I sent it to my my editor, and I was like, um, "Federalist found this thing I wrote when I was 19," and she was like, "That sounds like you." <laughs> <laughs> So I, I was sharpening my, my writing arsenal, but, you know, at 44 years old, I, I certainly would uh, not have written it that way. But I would have definitely uh, stood up for my friends. Speaking of your writing arsenal and your reporting arsenal, <laughs> you, you, you went to the University of North Carolina uh, to, uh, to study journalism, but you had made a decision. You spent a year in Atlanta. You had made a decision that you wanted to dig deep into these structural disparities uh, that were very, very clear uh, in this country. I mean, that was a conscious decision on, on your part, that this is what you wanted to to write about. Yes. So I was a, a history and African-American studies major at Notre Dame. And um, I took that year off because I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a historian or a journalist, and I needed to figure it out. Um, and ultimately, I decided on journalism because journalists write for the masses, and I felt like you can reach a lot more people and maybe actually change your society. Um, but I've always been deeply influenced by uh, how empowering history has been for me, that understanding the architecture upon which these inequalities were built um, calmed me, and it helped me understand that, oh, so what they're saying about why black people live in these conditions is not actually true. This, this is a constructed inequality and history teaches you how it was in, uh, constructed. So I knew that in becoming a journalist, I had to uh, always be mining that history and always using that history to inform my work and inform the reader. So yeah, that, that is why I wanted to become a journalist to, to really wed uh, those two loves in a way that I hoped would help people better understand uh, the country that we that we live in. You know, I live in Chicago a few blocks from a uh, boulevard that's named for Ida B. Wells. <laughs> uh, and a lot of our listeners probably don't know who Ida B. Wells is, but uh, Chicagoans do and you do because she was a, a kind of a role model for you. Absolutely. So I was actually, uh, I spoke at that street renaming in Chicago. Um, yeah. I was there for that event and I was very proud because it's a major thoroughfare where yes. oftentimes those types of street renamings don't happen in major, major thoroughfares. Um, so Ida B. Wells, of course, uh, was an investigative journalist. She was a black woman born into slavery uh, who began uh, investigating lynchings uh, right at the end of Reconstruction. It was an incredibly dangerous time to be Black in this country. And as uh, the South was trying to reinstate the racial order um, of slavery, um, they began a reign of terror against uh, particularly Black men, but Black people in general. And the kind of common justification for lynchings was that Black men were, were raping white women and Ida B. Wells began to investigate the real reasons behind lynchings and um, 
that's how, you know, her newspaper was burned down for writing about uh, the, the true causes of lynchings and also that there were many consensual relationships between black men and white women. Uh, she was also a suffragist. She was a civil rights activist. She was one of the uh, original co-founders of the NAACP. Um, and um, yeah, so she's long been kind of, I call her my spiritual grandmother because when I was thinking about wanting to be an investigative journalist, I didn't see a black woman doing what I wanted to do, but I had this historical icon who was little known to most Americans, but uh, not to me. Yeah, she had to flee Memphis. That's how she yes. ended up in Chicago because her uh, her reporting was so threatening yes. that that she put herself uh, in uh, in jeopardy. She also was a big thorn in the side of the suffragettes. Yes, uh, she was because they were they were campaigning for the right to vote for women, but not necessarily, but not for women of color. Uh, but she saw it as a, a step forward and she devoted herself to that. You went out to Portland and, uh, and spent five years at the Oregonian, which is the big paper, uh, yes. out there. And, and you had, um, uh, you had your battles there with, yes. uh, because you wanted to do this work and your, your editors were um, hesitant to allow you to do it. Yes. So I think that it's always important when uh, people see someone who has garnered a certain level of, of, of acclaim in their career to understand that the path has often not been easy and that um, many of the challenges that many younger black journalists, brown journalists face, um, many of us who who have some success now, have faced those as well. I went to Portland um, with understanding that I wanted to write about race. And uh, once I got there, however, that understanding seemed to disappear. And I was uh, really marginalized for wanting to write stories about racial inequality. Uh, I was uh, told that I was you know, it, I was too biased. I was showing my bias that this wasn't the reporting that uh, the vast majority of the Oregonians' readership wanted. Um, and I really struggled. I, I nearly left the industry at that point because, um, but when I got there, I got there in 2006, I left in 2011. Um, as many of the listeners may know, this is when the news industry was in a free fall. Uh, newspapers yeah. were laying off, you know, thousands of people across the country. And so I couldn't leave. There weren't there weren't other jobs to go to. And I also couldn't write about what I got into journalism to write about. So I just um, uh, really thought strongly about leaving. And all, almost all of my uh, friends of journalists of color who um, had come into the Oregonian with me uh, had left before I did. And the only reason I didn't leave was I just couldn't think of what else I wanted to do with my life. Um, I'd wanted to be a journalist since I was in high school, and I, I've always felt that this is like my calling. So I, I, I couldn't leave because I, I couldn't figure out anything else to do, and I stuck it out. And that's when uh, Steve Engelberg called me and wanted me to uh, apply to ProPublica. Um, and we had a conversation. I mean, the first conversation we had was... I told him I'm not going to come if I can't write about race, that I don't need to leave one bad situation uh, for another. And he assured me that uh, that's exactly why they wanted me. And uh, the rest is history. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now 
back to the show. As we talked about earlier, you you dug deep into into education and segregation patterns in, in education and the allocation of resources in education and so on, uh, and uh, and shown a bright light there. By the way, I, I just want to point out parenthetically that that issue of local news organizations failing is still a huge, huge problem for our country and is yes. conti- continues to this day. And, you know, there are great organizations like ProPublica and others that have sprung up, but the, 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 the hole is big and, and needs to be filled because we, that light needs to shine on local uh, institutions, not just just nationally, uh, but this this led you uh, to the Times and uh, the 1619 project uh, flowed from that. I know I'm compressing some history here, <laughs> okay. but talk to me about how that uh, how that came about and what your mission was uh, with the 1619 project. for the 1619 project. Um, so I had. I, I mean, I've literally, we talked about this. I've been thinking about the year 1619 since high school. And um, people who know me know that it's, it's a date that I bring up and, and evoke often. And as the anniversary, uh, so the end of 2018, I had been on book leave for about a year and a half. It was supposed to be a year, but as you know, um, it's, it's hard yes. to meet a book deadline. Yes, yes, um, I do know. <laughs> so... Um, I was getting ready to come back to work and thinking about what, what's the, you know, I've been gone for a year and a half. What's the first thing I want to work on when I get back. And I just kept thinking about that. This, that was going to be the 400th anniversary of uh, the beginning of American slavery. And yet almost no Americans, you know, few Americans had ever heard of that date. Um, And so that it was probably just going to pass uh, with, almost no acknowledgement or recognition, like so many things having to do with slavery and the black experience. And I wanted to use my platform at the times to force 1619 into the national lexicon, if possible, you know, just a small little goal. Yeah. Um, right. Well, if you're going <laughs> to shoot, I, shoot, shoot, right. shoot big. <laughs> and I had, you know, so I, I was thinking like, how could you do that? And simply writing like one piece uh, just was, far too small to assess a 400-year legacy of an institution that is so foundational to the American story, but yet has been treated as an asterisk to the American story. And I've long uh, argued that um, if you name anything in American life, I can trace it back to slavery. So I started thinking, well, we should actually just do, we should take over an entire issue of the magazine um, and look at all of these different American institutions that we think have nothing to do with slavery and show how they do. And that's really what, what the idea uh, was and, and how it was born. So uh, I, I was back at the Times for maybe a week, and I pitched the idea of doing a special issue on uh, the 400th anniversary, but an issue that wasn't going to be about just the past, but that was really going to be about uh, the ongoing modern legacy, that it was going to every story would start with today and, and trace it back. And I knew I wanted to do democracy and capitalism uh, music and why we're the only Western industrialized country without universal health care. And then we convened a bunch of scholars to um, brainstorm about what should some of the other pieces be. But that that was how it began. Yeah. And that that's what's extraordinary about it is it's not just the history of slavery, but yes. the history of the legacy of slavery 
uh, on to this day and dealing with things like infrastructure and how yes. highways were built to segregate people uh, and, of course, education and health care and the wealth gap uh, and, the, and the systemic things that were done that result in, in, in what we see today. This whole issue of systemic racism is, is it's, that's not jargon. That, right. that 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 is history and what you did that i think is so important is and all of those who worked on the project with you is to really really draw those lines uh uh to the stand now you're you're expanding this to uh to book form is speaking of book deadlines that are probably hanging over yeah. you i think the the power of the project is that it is rooted in the now that had we simply done a, a history, um, yes, people would have learned some things, but I don't think they would have engaged with it the same way because, you know, black people hear all the time, slavery was a long time ago, why don't you get over, with, uh, over it? And I wanted this project to show that we can't get over something that's so foundational and that we have not dealt with. Um, and we can't get over it as black people because our country hasn't gotten over it. Um, and so we, we are expanding into a series of books. There are going to be books from uh, picture books for young children to middle school, uh, older readers, and then an adult book. And I'm, um, we're working on the adult book right now, which is going to come out next year. And I'm so excited about it because we're adding about uh, eight additional essays, uh, many of them written by uh, some of the preeminent historians uh, in their fields. And we get to expand in, you know, into areas that the original project didn't get to cover um, and, and further bolster our argument. And I, I think continue to hopefully transform our understanding of this country. You know that... Um that in in the main that the project was widely praised by historians but some historians were critical just yeah. of a couple of aspects of it one was the assertion that the revolutionary war was uh fought to preserve the institution uh of slavery and uh the other was that the civil war was not fought over uh slavery um it's uh, explain I, I could I could read their critiques, but their general critiques, you know. Explain to me how you receive those uh, those critiques, and has it caused you to change your thinking in any way? Yeah. So the the main criticism is uh, the single line in my essay where I say that uh, one of the primary reasons that the colonists chose to revolt was the preservation of slavery. Um, what I will say is. In hindsight, I should have uh, been more careful with my language um, and I should have provided more evidence of the claim because in not doing so, uh, I left it open to um, exactly what, what has happened since then. Um, I didn't sit at home one day and say, I'm just going to make up something about the American Revolution. I got that from the work of historians. And this is actually uh, the revolutionary period and particularly the role of slavery uh, in the motivations of colonists, particularly in Virginia, Georgia, and South Carolina, is hotly contested uh, in the field of historiography and early American history, which I did not know when I kind of dropped that bomb in the middle <laughs> of my essay, that I was stepping into uh, a major argument that is being had in the field right now. And um, I, I should have been more savvy about uh, understanding 
how deeply we as a society want to protect uh, the purity of our founding. And we don't learn the narratives that uh, another motivation was the desire to take more indigenous lands and that another motivation was the desire not to pay off uh, their debts, uh, the colonist debts. And then, of course, uh, also uh, the desire to be uh, to have representation, a representative government. So there were all of these things happening back then. But I. Um, I did not provide enough evidence and left myself open for criticism. Um, and believe me when I say in the book, I will uh, be providing all of the source material for that claim. So I think um, anyone would have been extremely naive to think that you could produce a project like this that says, what if we were to consider 1619 our true founding and not 1776? And that black people are the perfectors of our democracy and the true founding fathers and not think you're going to get some pushback. Of course you are. <laughs> um, and I think criticism is good. It sharpens your argument. Um, no one produces uh, perfection ever. And historians argue with each other all the time. What has been uh, difficult has been uh, the extent to which a small group of people have really tried to discredit the project, uh, not simply to say, uh, we don't agree with that. We wouldn't have written that. We wouldn't have written it that way. We don't think there's enough evidence of that claim. But to um, to actually try to say that the entire project um, should be discredited and not be taught or not be considered that that has been unexpected and that has been difficult. Uh, and I certainly didn't see a year later that it would become part of uh, the national. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, you know, well, I mean the the. It is it is part of the national conversation because race is very much part of this uh, election and and uh, the politics of our moment as it's been the part of the politics of almost every moment uh, during yes. the course of, uh, of of America's life. But um, but yeah, there's there's legislation to there. Are the California schools, for example, want to make this 1619 project part of their uh, curriculum uh, for students. Uh, other states, I think, will follow. Other communities will follow. The uh, president has uh, threatened to withhold federal funding, which he can't do, uh, to states who, uh, who, who include uh, the project in its uh, teaching. I think Senator Cotton has introduced a bill to that yes. uh, effect. Um, so yeah, you're part of the politics of the moment. L let's talk about the politics of the moment. Um, you know, I, uh, I was among those who were at, was out marching, uh, and, uh, after, uh, George Floyd's, uh, murder and I, I you know, my wife, uh, Susan, uh, turned to me and she said, this is very, this is important. This is nice. But what happens next? Yeah. You know, are we just here to make ourselves feel good or are we what happens next? What is going to happen? Is there I mean, you see in polling some change in attitudes, but um, how do you assess the moment in which we're in? Because I've seen quotes where you weren't particularly hopeful mm -hmm. uh, uh, about whether this is really a hinge and hinge point in history or whether this is a, really a moment of progress. Yeah, I, I don't tend to be a hopeful person in general. Doesn't ever feel that useful in my life. But um, so I don't know. You know, in June, I wrote a piece, a cover story for the magazine called What is Old? And I argued that um, this felt, this period felt different from what we had seen before. And um, that in order to make it different, we had to 
ask for much larger reforms than simply laws that say police can't kill you without uh, consequence. Um, and at, at that time, where we were still seeing daily protests and wall-to-wall coverage of the protests, and the protests were in all 50 states um, and had been sustained for weeks upon weeks, it felt like we were um, right at the edge of something transformative. I, I, I'm already feeling like that uh, is slipping away. Mm-hmm. That uh, attention to uh, sustained efforts to reduce inequality and to truly transform our society, the attention span is always fleeting in this country. And um, it doesn't take long before folks are, are ready to move on or uh, feel very primed to um, those who say, okay, it's getting out of hand now. So, you know, it, it was fine as long as. Nobody was writing. Um, and now that some folks haven't behaved properly, then, you know, it's time to move on to other things. So I, I, I'm really worried. Um, yeah, I, I'm worried that the steam is, is, is running out and that the people who views were changing are starting to slip back. You know, I want to ask you about the rioting. The president obviously has seized on the rioting, which doesn't, you know, there were millions of millions of people who were marching in this country, uh, and the rioting represents a small portion uh, of those uh, people. But, um, uh, I mean, how 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 do you interpret uh, that? Because most people would look at that and, you know, and see this, destruction and arson and so on um as a um as kind of uh, polluting the cause or deterring the cause and the president obviously has seized on it and blown it up to say it's personally threatening um how do you how do you how do you see that and do you do you do you have a message about that i mean one let me just say I, i think it's fundamentally unfair to expect that people organizing protests control the behavior of every single person who shows up to a protest. Um, and especially people, you know, this, the, the writing uh, typically has occurred after the formal protests are over. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how, how people are expected to control the behavior of, of other people, especially when uh, organizers are clearly not promoting writing or uh, property damage. And so it always feels like we're just looking for an excuse um, so that we don't really have to uh, engage in the transformative change that's necessary. Um, the other thing is we know that we, we, we spend so much time condemning property damage. And that actually sends a message to people. Uh, it sends a message that if you want folks to pay attention, that you have to do something like that to get folks to pay attention. Um, and so it ends up being this, this counterintuitive. It, it, it is, uh, you know, when, when Trump goes to Kenosha and doesn't speak on the police brutality that led people to the streets, but speaks on uh, someone's property being damaged, it only affirms why people are out in the streets in the first place, which is that we are a country that seems to value uh, things over black lives. So no, I don't, I don't know any uh, reputable person who would condone the destruction of property or violence of any kind. Um, But I also think that uh, 
unfair focus on that and the expectation that people, you know, the police can't police themselves. Um, that's why people are out in the streets right now. And these are people who are being paid to do that. But the expectation is that those who are leading protests can somehow police every single person who shows up to a protest. It's just not fair. It, it's also important to note that the people who are making the most of the rioting as a political issue are so hesitant to condemn uh, counter-protesters who have been a source of violence and death. Yes, uh, not even hesitant. They, I mean, there is a refusal. Yeah. So while you know, Black Lives Matter protesters are expected to uh, be held accountable for everything that anyone who comes, and many of these, again, people have nothing to do with it. And actually it's been shown that some of them are actually uh, white nationalists who are intentionally uh, being destructive. Um, no one is expecting that same type. You know, uh, the, the young man who shot um, and killed those people in Kenosha, yeah, no one said, right, said that he was representative of counter-protesters. And those counter-protesters were not expected to condemn him. And in fact, they refused to. And the president offered a defense uh, of him. So, <laughs> yes, uh, yes, he did. So, so think, I mean, again, like when you think about uh, that, when I said on uh, national TV that, you should not call burning a building down. You should not use the same terminology about violence when you're talking about burning a building down as you do uh, as police killing a black yeah. man. Uh, you know, I got dozens yeah. of threats of people right. who said, I'm going to come burn your house down. But when the president uh, somehow says it is OK, it's not OK to burn down this camera shop. But it is okay, you know, I can understand why he had to shoot and kill someone. It actually makes the whole point of the movement that mm -hmm. uh we are valuing certain things like property over the lives of, of human beings. Do you get many threats? And is that a concern? Uh, <laughs> I, I never did until the 1619 Project. And yeah, now uh, I do. Um, but I'm, I'm not concerned about it, no. You talk about, you know, the big sort of transformational change that's necessary. Tell me what that would look like. Uh, what does big transformational change look like to you? So if we're talking about um, to address racial inequality, of course, I think the biggest change that needs to occur is we need to pass a reparations bill. Um, I make the argument in my piece, What is Old, that uh, almost, almost everything about what makes Black life so hard is... Uh, the wealth disparity and the forced wealth poverty that black Americans experience. Um, you can't fix everything, um, but that certainly would substantially change uh, the material lives of black Americans and the vulnerability that black Americans face in everything from housing uh, to schools, to ability to get a college education, um, to ability to just feed your family or weather a financial storm. I also think that we need uh, strong enforcement of existing civil rights laws. Literally every time they measure it, Black people are facing rampant discrimination in the housing market, uh, lending, uh, in employment. Um, and we have decent laws on the books, but those laws aren't being enforced. So I, I would guess some of your neighbors in Waterloo and other places in Iowa would who are struggling themselves right now, um, uh, w white, white working class people would, would reject this and say, you know, I don't feel privileged at all. 
I'm struggling. Maybe I've got a drug issues. I've got, you know, I, I'm going through some of these very, very same things. And uh, there's strong resistance. You know, uh, the idea of reparations is uh, is is jet fuel for 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 Trump and his politics for this reason, because he, he, he has his is a politics of resentment. Um, what do you say your your former neighbors? I know you don't live in uh, Waterloo mm-hmm. anymore. Um, uh, yeah, you probably get less of that argument in Brooklyn, but you could probably find some people who oh, would sure. make it. Um, tell me, tell me uh, what you would say to them if they were sitting here. Well, first to be clear, uh, reparations is not paid by white people. Reparations is paid by the federal government, and. Um, if you understand that reparations is to address a specific legacy of uh, chattel slavery and anti-blackness where black people were excluded from the ability to accumulate wealth over time, then it is about a societal debt and not an individual Yeah, you debt. call it restitution. Right, and, and it is restitution. And, this, and the other thing I would say is I also am strongly in support of universal anti-poverty programs. I don't think we should be having these conversations in isolation. Um, I do believe in universal health care. I, I believe in a universal basic income. I believe that every American should be able to have access to safe and quality housing. We can do those things to address the poor and also understand that the experience of Black Americans is a singular experience. There is a singular disadvantage. One does not argue that because someone else has diabetes, we can't spend money on cancer research. You don't make that argument. You have to address this particular harm. And what I try to show uh, in the piece that I wrote is even amongst the poor, white poor are advantaged compared to black poor. Uh, White poor don't live in uh, the typical uh, white people in poverty don't live in areas of concentrated poverty. They actually have more wealth than uh, the average middle class black family. Their children attend, on average, a middle-class white school. So even poverty is racialized in this country. But again, I'm not arguing that reparations be paid and then we do nothing to help uh, the least of these in um, amongst all races. We can do all of those things, and we should be advocating to do all of those things. I asked you, uh, as, we, as we leave, uh, you, you have a child, maybe mm-hmm. right in that very room, yeah, she just came in. <laughs> <laughs> um, you you said that you you're sort of losing hope that that uh, of change. What is your what do you say to her um, about the world uh, and what she is 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 facing? Just as your father ha- uh, spoke with you uh, back in the day about what what the burdens you would have to face would be. Yeah, I think every uh, black parent tries to uh, simultaneously preserve as much of your child's innocence as possible, but also give them the armor to go out into the world. Um, That's what I try to do with with my daughter. She is very aware of racial inequality and very aware of racial injustice. She's also very aware that uh, she is much more privileged than most of the kids who look like her. Um, So... To me, while I don't have uh, hope that we are going to see a transformed America, I certainly have hope in my own life and um, what I'm able to do and provide for my own child. And I see my work as trying to uh, expand those opportunities for other children like her and other people uh, like our community. Well, I must say the 
anyone who reads the 1619 Project and your other work would need to take it to heart because it, there's, the case is so compelling, the history is so stunning, and we should say that it, it is not demeaning of America to say this is a part of our history that we need to reconcile with, and in, in fact, to say we love and believe in the American ideal enough that we're willing to work to see the country live up to it. And uh, that's how I viewed the 1619 Project and your work. And I am, I am an idealist about this country. I'm the son of an immigrant. I've seen it. I've seen it reach its. Uh, I've seen what it's meant to me and my family. But, but it's a work in progress. And this, and we can't get to where we want to go unless we reconcile with this history, and uh, do what's necessary, and to 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 make that right and to affect change. So I appreciate the work that you've done and that you will continue to do. And uh, it'll mean a lot not, uh, to, to a, lot of, uh, a lot of young people across this country over time, I hope. Anyway, Nicole, uh, it's great to be with you. Good luck. Thank you. I look forward to your book and other works. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Koop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.